Struggling to stay up to date with social media? Do you want to get ahead online? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Public Sector Marketing Show, the podcast for public sector professionals who want to elevate their digital communications. Here's your host, Joanne Sweeney. Welcome to season six and episode 93 of the Public Sector Marketing Show. We are sauntering into 2024, but the world is not becoming any friendlier. And I think that the internet is becoming a little bit nastier. It's also election season. And with that, we'll bring more divisiveness, disinformation, and dare I say it, voter disillusionment. But not to start off the season with pessimism, I want to unpack X, Elon Musk's first Irish interview, and how we navigate the online space through election season, and how political parties and politicians need to show up better for people. So let's dive in. So in today's column, I'm asking the question, what are the major challenges ahead of election season 2024? Another big question is who owns the truth and where are the sources of truth during election season that we can rely on? Mainstream media is getting a battering from some sections of the public right now and new and alternative media sources and content creators are amassing audiences at huge rates, especially on TikTok. As we enter election season in an Irish context, we have a referendum on March 8th before the people go to vote in the local and European elections on June 7th. Stateside, the primaries are underway before US citizens go to the polls in November to elect the 47th president of the United States of America. And it's going to get dirty, very dirty, online. In today's show, I want to discuss the role of X, the challenge to mainstream media, and Elon Musk and Ben Scallon who discuss Ireland's proposed hate speech legislation, among other things. It's impossible to unpack it all, but here's some things that I'm going to discuss later on in the show. The major challenges facing politics and voters coming up into 2024 is the increasing amount of disinformation. We already see it happening on TV campaigns in the United States, where Donald Trump's campaign have, are running TV ads to criticize and to show up Joe Biden and his age. They're using that against him. And there's been some quite uh, explicit editing done on those ads. Um, so they take a speech delivered by Joe Biden and they show him tripping up. But in actual fact, during that speech, he didn't trip up as much as the edited version was shown in the TV campaign. So that's just one example. New to election season 2024 is going to be deep fake and the use of AI technology, machine learning to dub people's voices, to clone their faces and to make them say things that they're not really saying. We also have major challenges for female political candidates uh, around the creation of explicit imageries. We've seen Taylor Swift being a victim of that recently. And then the, the mainstream media and the challenges that they are facing, more and more members of the public are calling out 
in their view, uh, the, the inability of mainstream media to get to the truth, to, to share the, the stories that a section of society say that they should be sharing. And so that narrative is growing at a really fast rate and in particular on TikTok. And I'm going to do a whole separate podcast on how TikTok is driving citizen narrative around particular topics that's influencing how people are thinking and how ultimately people will vote. So we as voters and members of the public also have to take responsibility. We've got to ask ourselves, where are we getting our information? Are we going to trusted sources? And are we getting a variety of voices uh, to ensure that we are collecting all the relevant information, the truthful information, and then making a decision based on being informed and not simply on reading headlines and not reading the detail. Public sector pros, do you want to progress in your career? Are you going for promotion? Do you want to stay ahead of the digital media landscape? We can help you. View our training calendar at publicsectormarketingpros.com. In today's consulting segment, I'm going into what I think are the competing pillars of the era of truth that we're living in right now. Political correctness, social media free speech, cancel culture, and algorithmic bias. These are all relatively new terms that have evolved over the last couple of years. And right now, it almost feels impossible to have your own opinion. Think about it. You listen to, to the news, to mainstream media. You then have conversations with friends, with colleagues. You scroll social media. There are opposing views everywhere, around every corner, online, offline. And perhaps no matter how hard we try, we get targeted with divisive and emotive headlines that puts our minds and our thinking in a tailspin. We are living in a world where political correctness, cancel culture, social media, free speech, and algorithmic bias are compete, competing for attention. And I want to say, um, was it Bill Clinton that said his famous line in his presidential election campaign, it's the economy, stupid? I mean, I stand corrected on that. But right now, what I say, it's the attention economy, stupid. Think about it. Attention for social media users means more ad revenue for the social networks. Attention for politicians and political parties means potentially more votes. Attention for mainstream media consumption, more ad revenue. And attention for creators leads to more followers and the ability to, for them to sell their products and their services. The attention economy is killing us. I mean, I even think it's potentially killing and threatening our democracies, our mental health, our mindsets, and the ability to, for us to have our own ideas. The more time we spend online, the more our visions are skewed. I really do fear for democracy and civilization. And you know what? Standing here recording this podcast, the public sector marketing show, you know, I'm part of it. I'm selling the notion that we can sell the truth to the people in the public interest for the common good from government and public sector. That's what I believe in. That's my mission. I want to help 
these agencies and these professionals improve and elevate the standard of their digital communications in the public interest. But I'm now becoming part of that massive conversation. And then your public sector marketing pros and your colleagues are so afraid to go online, to show up with that authenticity, to show up and to fill those vacuums where bad information have taken up space. And then you stay away. And that's the wrong thing to do. But I understand why you do it. So how do we navigate 2024 online? Here's some ideas for us citizens, but also for you public sector pros. Firstly, I'd say choose your sources of truth or be the source of truth. Stand up to the negativity. Don't retreat. Be visible. Inform the public. Fill those vacuums. Secondly, I'd say share content. Sharing content on social media makes you an influencer. Even if you only have 20 followers, you are potentially influencing the views and the thinking of the people that follow you when you share content. So think about that responsibility. And then thirdly, for public sector, you need to monitor public commentary. Where are the gaps in information? How do you improve public awareness? And what are the questions they are putting to you that you really need to answer? There's a lot to consider in 2024. Um, I will do what I can to, to bring the truth and to, to bring the skills to, to public sector and to government. Uh, but let's face it, um, you need to show up online and you need to be there uh, and be a good source of truth. Jack Parrick, thank you so much for joining me on the Public Sector Marketing Show. Thanks so much for having me, Joanne. Well, listen, first of all, let me introduce you to our viewers and to our podcast listeners. Uh, you're a journalist, news correspondent, presenter and conference moderator based in Brussels, a specialist in EU affairs and pan-European reporting. You spent over a decade reporting on the major stories coming out of the Brussels bubble and across Europe. Uh, you're also a TV presenter working with global news outlets such as Deutsche Welle, Euronews, The Times, The Telegraph and many other renowned TV channels. Uh, also a seasoned conference host and of course we had the pleasure of co-hosting in Brussels last September at the EPP Group uh, Youth Conference. But thanks for taking some time out of your day because I know you're in Strasbourg, right? Yeah, I'm here at the European Parliament in Strasbourg this week, reporting on on this quite a big week, actually. Well, listen, uh, I've asked you on the show because um, it's been a pretty big week um, in Ireland recently because ex-CEO uh, Elon Musk conducted his first Irish media interview with Ben Scallon from Gripped.ie. And I can tell you what, that interview certainly had me gripped. Uh, they were discussing Ireland's proposed hate speech legislation. And in the context of a of election season, you know what I mean? Um, there's a lot to unpack here, but you had a chance to, to listen to it. What, what are your initial thoughts? Yeah, it, firstly, it was a very interesting interview, like structurally for me. Um, it's also interesting to watch Elon Musk in the way in which he speaks in these um, interviews. He's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's all like very analytical, like he's sort of pondering, but also 
and he sort of repeats very specific things that he wants to say and then says some and then says some stuff which is extremely um not inflammatory well yeah probably inflammatory um but it's done in this sort of calm measured analytical context which was really interesting um yeah and i can see why the interview is getting so much traction in ireland like he is threatening to support irish citizens in legal cases um so i mean it's a huge issue for the for the irish government and irish regulators to to look into and and for sure and the the kind of theme of this podcast is it's election season and how do we maintain truth and where do we get the truth um, when we've got European elections happening, we've got local elections happening in Ireland, we've got the US elections. In fact, there are elections all across the world. So, so many nation states are battling with this. And as a journalist reporting on politics, and if we look at X and Elon Musk says that, well, you know, this is the platform for free speech. But is it really? I mean, how do you navigate it as a journalist? Because let's face it, mainstream media is getting criticized for, for not telling the truth either. Yeah, I mean, this this was actually part of the podcast discussion when he talked about sort of editors of, of newspapers and, and of TV channels and the, what would be sort of called the mainstream media sort of dictating what is talked about and deciding what the narrative is. Um, obviously, there's an editorial decision that happens in every single outlet right and and there are some i would argue that have stronger editorial standards than others and we're all aware of that but he he talked elon musk in that podcast about like who's in charge of deciding what is disinformation and misinformation sort of accused uh the fact that like political bodies he said all politicians are liars essentially is what he hinted at and suggested that um political bodies shouldn't be in charge of deciding that I mean, and then the opposite question of that is, who is then? I mean, him, right? That's the deal. Platforms like his uh, are then in charge of being the sort of arbiters of truth. And that comes down then to a decision of what do people want? Do they want to continue allowing sort of big tech giants like him, like Mark Zuckerberg and others, um, of being in control of that? And I mean, I like you. And like probably a lot of people that listen to your podcast use these social media platforms extensively. I post everything I ever publish will go on my ex Twitter feed, right? Uh, partly for reach, partly for, I don't say like self-promotion, but people don't know what you're talking about. Like it's being part of that conversation, right? It's making sure that the stuff that we're working on, the stuff that we're reporting on gets as much uh, play or as much coverage as possible. And that's important especially for, for independents like me, right? Like I need, you need to be out there. You need to be part of the conversation. Otherwise you're simply not. Um, but yeah, I mean, the exodus from X really hasn't happened, right? Everyone mm -hmm. is still there. We're all still giving him our time and our money. So yeah. Yeah. And, and what's ironic is that um, his moderation department in the Dublin office, which is the European headquarters, that was scaled back to, to next to nothing when he came in. And moderation is just not happening on X as far as I can see as a user. Uh, and I'm in Ireland and I'm getting faced with mainly American politics and politics uh, that's one-sided. And he has intentions to turn X into a TV channel. But, you, you know, you're in Brussels. How, how are you feeling about the um, upcoming election season and and being that arbiter of the truth for us through through your media work. 
yeah so on on your on your point about um on your point about the the sort of election season um it's the european elections is such a difficult one and it's super interesting because there is 27 eu member countries multiple different languages spoken in different countries as well so trying to have some sort of clarity on uh, like sort of what is a fair election it can be really difficult across the different eu member states and that is where platforms like his and like facebook probably x more now nowadays actually has more political power and weight in the european union than facebook perhaps did when we did the elections in 2019 i don't know that's an impression i've sort of said that out of the top of my head but yeah i think so i think facebook had much more power yeah. five years ago um than now um but yeah like you say these he's wound back all of the uh moderation people which is a sign he says it doesn't matter they weren't doing anything we're allowing like the thing but it's symbolic right like the 50 100 200 people whatever that he has in in europe i mean it's a symbol to remove those people it's a sign of of an intention i think anyway um and so what happens it's just a free-for-all he talked in that podcast actually about um about um the how newspapers if they get something wrong or if something's printed wrong we can't like amend it but that happens all the time you see corrections and also there's an editorial filter so you know i'm not i'm not saying like like every journalist i've got things wrong in my life right but I've had the opportunity to amend it, to change it, to update it, whatever. That's what happens. And it, and even if I have got something wrong, there's been at least one, if not two, editors and then someone putting it out as well. There's multiple eyes on it, right? And so there's an editorial process that happens in the mainstream media organisations. Whereas a, a tweet, you can just fly off any old rubbish that you like, a complete known lie as well. And it can get go viral, get tons of traction. And then, okay, you can have some moderation and you can change it and do it underneath. And you can do that much more quickly, I understand. But like the process and the onus on journalists to get things right is completely different when it's going through that editorial structure of a newspaper or a TV channel or a radio station, whatever. Even what we have to do to publish on news channels, social media. So, and this is something, sorry to sort of turn the conversation away, but when we're talking about, about elections and reporting and stuff like that, I tend now not to post news too much on my own that doesn't have a branded channel behind it. So I prefer doing my reporting through the channels um, for whom I work because it just, it gives you that first like a bit of authority a bit of backing and secondly um and secondly a bit of coverage like if something goes wrong you can say listen this was this is part of an ed editorial process and i think a lot of other journalists are doing doing similar things and we know that the political parties political groupings individual politicians rely heavily on social media uh, and they will for for election time because getting out the vote rallying the troops and encouraging people to vote as well as campaigning very much will be done um on the digital doorsteps uh, for 2024 would you agree totally especially just because of the nature of how the european parliament works with the lists 
So it's not like it, often people don't feel that they're like voting for one specific person. They're voting for like a nationwide, like it ha it's different in every single country. So I don't want to like go through all 27 countries. But generally the, the thing in the European Parliament elections is that it's a, it's a much broader church. And also what's interesting in the European Parliament context is that the, under, the sort of perceived wisdom is that people vote for that the parties that they actually believe in rather than the one that they think will win and not like to prevent the other one so in so for instance sort of um in a in an irish context people will go out and vote for finnafall because they'd rather it be finnafall than someone else right and so they just vote for them but actually in in the context of the european parliament elections they don't feel that those people are too directly um like they're not making the laws in their in their country so they instead will just vote for perhaps a more fringe party perhaps they'll vote for the greens perhaps they'll vote for the nationalist party you know they'll vote for people that they wouldn't necessarily vote for domestically and the politicians know that so when they get out they charge they hypercharge their social media accounts to try and like sort of boost their visibility and remind people that they actually haven't had that vote in the European Parliament and it, it can it can work for them. Are you worried about deep fake um, in this election? Like, you know, the voices and faces of politicians or election candidates being cloned, being dubbed and uh, purporting for them to be saying something that they're actually not? Yeah, I got deep faked once. Have you ever told you about this? Tell me the story. No, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so I can't remember when it was, maybe six months ago. Um, I used to anchor for Euronews, um, but I haven't done it, I don't think, since maybe 2020 or 2019, like quite a few years now. And um, yeah, some, someone sent me a video that was going around Facebook, which was of me anchoring a show at Euronews. Um, and it looks like me and it's kind of cut. And it looks very, it looks very official if you're just scanning through it. And actually it was interesting. It was re relevant to this, to this conversation we're having about Elon Musk. What they'd done is they deep faked my mouth and my voice. So I had an American accent, which I clearly don't have naturally, saying that Elon Musk uh, says that EU, EU citizens no longer have to work. That was the thing. And then it was cut, it was really, really crazy. And it was super interesting to me um, why anyone would choose a video of me to deep fake, right? I'm sorry to talk about myself, but it's interesting because <laughs> it's interesting in the context of why would they do it to me? And the reason is, this is what I conceptually think. I'm not famous, right? I'm not Anderson Cooper on CNN. I'm not, uh, I was going to say Hugh Edwards then, but I was, I'm not you know, Fiona Bruce of the BBC yeah. or Christiane Adelman-Poor or someone like that. But in that setting of the Euronews studio, I look very official. I look the part, but people aren't going to know that I don't have an American accent. People aren't going to know that there's, you know what I mean? So it's a very easy thing for them to make it look super official without people questioning it with someone like me, who's a sort of not famous TV personality, right? That looks the part, but not. And this is the same with the European Parliament. Right. So they're in this big, they, they could deep fake it so easily. They're in this big house. It looks like, you know, like the council from Star Wars. It's you know, really, 
official and people look really proper and they're in their suits and they stand up and make their speeches and it'll be super easy for them for, for deep fakers to make these videos where it looks like they're announcing these huge policies that are completely untrue i i really predict that that could be a massive problem we've not i've not seen that too much as yet um but yeah, I, I, like when I when I when I was thinking about these elections and the deep fake aspect of it, my own personal experience came into that. And I think pe people don't know who the MEPs are, right? That's the truth. Yeah. Like, the, most citizens of the European Union might know who Roberta Metzola, the president of the parliament, is. They might know who their MEP is. There's some great female like, Irish MEPs, especially who are quite who are quite well known and are former ministers and stuff like that. But 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 they're known really for their their Irish political activities, not necessarily for what they've done in the European Parliament. And that's the case across the EU as well. So what about um, Swifty? We've been watching the Grammys, right? And Oh my God, it, it was a great show. But um, it just reminded me of the invitation of the um, president of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, to Taylor Swift, is this right? To, to come and encourage people in the EU to vote because we know she had an interest in the elections and was supporting what Biden and in, in, in the last US elections. So, you know, what, what, what are people saying in Brussels about that? Will she come over? Yeah, it, well, <laughs> I don't think Taylor Swift is going to be doing it. But it is super interesting from the perspective of, I think it was the European Commission Vice President, Executive Vice President, Margarita Skinas, who actually made that comment. He was like doing a press conference about elections. And basically in the US, ahead of the last elections, Taylor Swift posted on her Instagram, like, just go and register to vote in the US. And something like 40,000 young people went out and registered to vote. And I think Skinna said something like, we should do a similar thing, that we, he would encourage her to try and do that and to sort of, to, you know, con connect with democracy. Like I said, I don't think Taylor Swift is going to do it, but it also shows, I think more what that shows is the understanding of the politicians and the senior officials in like the upper echelons of EU spheres that really they're not connecting with young people um, and that, the people that really have the power are the 50 million Instagram followers. And there was a big discussion about that, like who in which European stars would would be the ones, maybe like Rosalia, the Spanish star. She's got quite a lot of, quite a big following and would they do it? But also what are they saying then? Because it's more difficult for a European, again, she could say go out and vote across the EU. But she's going to say that from a Spanish context, right? So it always feels Spanish and it's not really going to, someone in, you know, Poland isn't going to be like, they're going to think she doesn't know, like, about what the politics of Poland is, which is very, very contentious at the moment, right? Like, so it's a different thing. But it's interesting. I think what it shows, like I said, is that an understanding that they need to connect with the young voters. Yeah. So... I want to ask you, and I won't keep you too much longer because I know you've got a, a meetings to go to, but mainstream media is coming in for a lot of criticism now. And even the fact that we're calling you mainstream media suggests that maybe there's alternative media that we should be listening to. But but what's your impression as a journalist in 2024? Um, do you think your position, your authority um, has been eroded in this divisive online world? Yes, I do think so. But I also 
and I sometimes say this with trepidation and I, I say this sort of in private conversations, but I, I think probably I'm willing to say this now as well here. I also think that people, a lot of people are coming back to the mainstream media, not necessarily by sitting down and watching the six o'clock news or not necessarily by sort of, um, by sort of, uh, you know, buying the newspaper every morning anymore. Um, but I think in the last 15 years, we've seen a massive swing away from away from from sort of the traditional legacy media as well as another term for it. Um, but now I tend to see that the quantity and the noise that happens online actually allows people to actually what people are starting to do. This is just, this is anecdotal. This is not any studies or anything. This is my feeling and my sense is that people are starting to look towards the big brands for the security. They cannot be bothered to sift through the noise. And therefore they look for the brands that they trust. They look to the news brands that they, that they perhaps traditionally have trusted or perhaps the new ones as well. And I'm not somebody that's in favor of like just sticking to the old brands, new, exciting ways of presenting things with as long as there's journalistic standards behind it then that's fair my only concern with it is the back end of that is that what we tend to see online is then people rally around a flag so for instance you've seen i don't want to like i don't want to touch on too many difficult issues but if you look at what's happening in israel and gaza there are particular media outlets that are having very specific positions on that and people are very much sort of rallying around um those um those media outlets and so that can be a little bit difficult yeah, not i'm not saying it's the wrong wrong thing to do but we don't want those echo chambers we don't want the drip feed of information we want the plural plurality that the online space can give us so I think there is a sort of there is actually a bent back towards some of, some of the more traditional brands who are getting better at doing their online content. Some of the places I work for are getting so much better at competing in the online space. Right? They've bucked up now. There's no question about it. Everybody is moving into that area, and they're doing it quickly and efficiently, and they're good. Um, but yeah, I think as a as a news consumer, the question is like, how do you consume your news? And and I would just Lead everyone to to trust editorial standards. Where it, you know, find 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 the news that you trust. And it's hard to say. Like that, that's a hard definition, isn't it? How do I define that? You know, faith yeah. back end. Absolutely. And you know what? Yeah. We, we don't have faith in you know editorial standards. You know, we lose faith in democracy. We lose faith in politics. And then where does society go? And that that just opens the door for people who have nefarious objectives to, to to win the internet and to win people over. Yeah, and that was, I mean, Elon Musk was talking talking about that stuff as though he doesn't own one of the biggest news, yeah. news like, well, it's not a news organization, but it kind of is as well. I don't know, I don't know. Like I said, like the, the sort of exodus and all of that really hasn't happened. We exist in that space. And I think I just, like on the European Parliament elections, I think that there's a big, um, it's going to be a real barometer of how this works. Like yeah. I say, not only with the voters, they can vote their own way, but the way that these things shake down, the European Parliament elections can be a good case study in democracy as well. 
for sure. Well, listen, Jack, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you get back to work. We will follow uh, your election coverage with interest. And I've tagged your LinkedIn profile and your X profile um, in the blog post associated with the podcast. But thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, John. You know how much I, I admire you and admire everything you do. Appreciate it. See you later. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of season six of the Public Sector Marketing Show. If you have an intention to level up your critical thinking around social media or digital marketing this year, we have re-recorded and updated our three signature accredited courses, uh, our social media bootcamp, the Diploma in Digital Communications, and also the Diploma in Social Media. And they are available on our brand new website, publicsectormarketingpros.com. So there's a whole academy of courses there that are free, that are short, and then of course, the longer accredited ones. I also have details of the done for you packages that we are now offering. So if you'd like me and my team to be part of your team to better help you strategize and execute, then go and have a look at our website and see what we can offer. And as always, if you haven't got a copy of my book, Public Sector Marketing Pro, you can get it off Amazon, or if you prefer to listen, you can get the audiobook off Audible. Uh, I will see you on episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with a public sector pro you know. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform or on YouTube. For more free resources, details of our upcoming training courses and consulting options, log on to publicsectormarketingpros.com.